Okay, everybody, we have an amazing interview today. Yes, Keith Raboy, investor, operator, entrepreneur, super insightful individual, kind of classic, controversial, sure, is back with us. We have him back every six months or or so. And uh, this is his eighth time on the pod. And so we took this time to go through his most interesting predictions on past appearances. We went back to 2019. And this is a really we're giving Keith his flowers, we're, we're giving him a victory lap, and we're giving him challenging questions. He always he's never not answered a question. This is one of the things that makes a great guest. Super candid, super smart, super insightful, iconoclastic, and candid. He will he's fearless, he'll answer any question and he does. So enjoy this one on 0.75 or 1x speed. Do not put this at one and a half x speed because He's a fast talker, and I'm a fast question answer, and I do a lot of fast follow-ups. You don't want to listen to this at one and a half. Slow it down and enjoy every minute of it. But first, I'm going to break down Airbnb's amazing fourth quarter and full year earnings report. Such an impressive business, such impressive management, uh, and really an impressive product. We've got a lot of interesting takeaways about the length of stays and new products they are going to be launching. I have some ideas for the team over there, and I'm going to get into them in detail. Then briefly, I'll give some thoughts on San Francisco's Board of Education recall, which happened yesterday, and a lot of tech people were driving that, supporting it. It's a big win for San Francisco, uh, and it could be the first step in accountability coming to our wrecked city that's been run by complete wackos who are completely incompetent. It's It's a new day for San Francisco. Stick with us. It's going to be an amazing episode. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. Gun.io, the simplest way for anyone to hire world-class developers, expertly vetted for you by senior engineers. Get $250 off your first hire at gun.io slash twist and eight sleep good sleep is the ultimate game changer now you can add the pod pro cover to any mattress go to eightsleepcom slash twist for exclusive president's day savings through february 22nd all right in our first story airbnb is absolutely crushing it their stock was up five percent today after they had a great beat in the fourth quarter of 2021, and their full-year earnings were very impressive as well. Uh, and there's some interesting uh, consumer trends that are driving all of this. Stock is, you know, 190-ish with a market cap of $120 billion. Uh, that's a pretty rich uh, market cap, for sure. And uh, it's a pretty great company, we all know that. Stock is up 28% over the past six months because they were one of the COVID stocks that got a little beat up. They basically recovered since their uh, initial tech uh, drawdown. So let's break down the stats here and forget about the price. Because the price of a stock is a function of so many things, as we've learned. But the reality, which is what we try to get here and try to understand the actual business, is what's important. So let's just get into the numbers. Q4 2021. Total trips booked, 73 million. That's up 59% over 2020. But you remember in 2020, we had a pandemic. And if you don't remember... You couldn't even stay in an Airbnb. Airbnbs were shut down, banned, uh, and hotels as well. Do you remember those scary couple of months? And depending on the region, Airbnbs then became the favored um, 
place for you to stay. And Airbnb got so shook by all of this. They let go of something like a third or maybe more between contractors uh, of their staff, right? It was a very scary time for that company because they had one business, people traveling, and travel was shut down. Borders were closing in 2020. The, of course, important analogy for all of these pandemic-impacted businesses is to go back and look at 2019. Interestingly, total trips booked are down 3% from 2019, but the stock keeps going up. So we have to wonder why. Well, one of the things is the business has recovered. So people are now attracted to it. Um, and so you can essentially think of them as flat between when the pandemic happened and now. That's interesting in terms of trips book. But if we look at gross bookings, uh, or total volume, you know, this is the dollar value of all the bookings, uh, not giving money to uh, the hosts, right? Because the hosts get the bulk of the money. Were, uh, was 11.3. That's up 91% over 2020. It makes total sense that they almost doubled 2020 because that was really a challenged year, the most challenging year for the company since probably the first year. And they were up 32% since 2019. So the dollar value, even though they were slightly down in trips booked, the dollar value was up 32%. What does that show you? Well, it shows you some kind of pricing power, okay, that people would pay more for these Airbnbs or maybe some more inventory that's high end is going up. Kind of hard to tell, but uh, something is happening where the trips are taking more, maybe they're longer trips, right? So revenue 1.5 billion. And this is like, you know, the, the detective work you have to do. So revenue 1.5 billion. Uh, that's the money they take in. Remember, you have gross bookings when you're looking at something like Uber, DoorDash, Lyft, uh, or even Airbnb, that's the total value of what people spent, what went on people's credit cards. But as you know, there's another party that takes the bulk of it, the provider, whether it's the restaurant uh, or the drivers or the host. So their revenue for the quarter, 1.5 billion, at 78% up from 2020 and up 38% uh, from 2019. Net income is their profits, their bottom line. That was uh, $55 million. In other words, a little cash, a, a little splashy cash, he goes into the bank account. And their Q4 take rate, take rate is their take, their percentage. You can just think of it as a rake, R-A-K-E, like when you're at a casino, if you're playing poker, they take a little bit out of every pot, that's called the rake. So you have the rate, take rate, you'll hear people say that, and then you'll hear someone like Bill Gurley say the rake, R-A-K-E. Rake is what you rake out of each winning pot in a poker game or a casino. Uh, and that's why they talk about beating the rake. So when people are gambling, if you've got to beat the rake, that's like there's a 11th player at the poker table, or if it's a nine handed poker game, the 10th, you have to beat the house, which is taking a percentage and then be up from that. So that's why playing in a home game is slightly more EV positive. Uh, if they're not taking a rake, which is illegal in most states, because then you're running a casino out of your house. Revenue divided by total gross bookings uh, equals the take rate. Very easy for you to do that. So you take the total revenue that they made and you just divide that into the gross bookings, right? So that makes sense, 13%. Uh, so as we said, 1.5 billion divided into 11.3, 13%. Very easy for you to do. Someday we'll put a... Uh, We'll put little charts up and we'll, uh, that actually would be kind of cool if I had one of those Wacom tablets, so they call Wacoms, where I could actually do the math and we would draw the math on the screen as I did it. Uh, total trip book, we'll put a calculator up there. And I think this is important for people who are trying to understand business who are investors, whether in the public market or private, to take a calculator out or do back of the envelope math for yourself. It really lets you form a mental model of the business. What I just did for you, 73 million uh, trips booked. And then the total number of gross bookings was 11.3. You could divide 73 into 11.3 and find out what each trip cost. You could divide 73 million into their revenue, 1.5 billion. And you could find out how much money they make per 
uh, trip uh, per trip booked in gross revenue, not gross bookings, but the revenue that they get their take rate, and you could divide it into their net income, seven, 55 million. Right now, the profit, they're making less than a dollar 90 cents or so 80 cents, maybe for everybody who books an Airbnb. That's how much profit Airbnb is currently making. Now that's probably by design. At some point, they could cut costs, raise rates, and all of a sudden make $10 for every time somebody booked one. Uh, there, there's a lot of expansion there, in other words. So for 2021, total trips booked 300 million. Uh, that's down 8% from 2019. That's the really correct thing to look at. So they're still down significantly, right from 2019. No, I shouldn't say significantly. They're modestly 8%. I would say is modestly significantly would be over 15%. Gross bookings are total volume for the year. 47 billion. That's up 23% over 2019. That's the comparison we're going to do. We're going to take out 2020. Hosts earned 34 billion in all of 2021. Think about the economic impact of $34 billion going out into the world to people who previously probably didn't have this as a small business opportunity. That is extraordinary. Uh, revenue, 6 billion uh, for the year. That's uh, up 23% over 2019. Uh, and the net loss was around 350 million. And uh, that's two times smaller than 2019 when they lost, I assume 700 million. So pretty interesting. The business is in great shape. It's growing. It's clear that they're back from the pandemic. And let's just look here at um, some of the big picture. Uh, you have the trips booked down from 2019 to uh, 2021, but only slightly or 8% down year over year, the 2019 to 2021 year. However, Airbnb's gross bookings and revenue are up more than 30%, right? So there's something interesting happening here. We've pointed it out a couple of times now. Um, you would think these things were correlated. They're obviously something's bifurcated. Here's what uh, they said. Stays of seven plus days made up almost half of all bookings. Now let's pause on that. We don't know what they used to be. They're not telling us the historical significance of this, right? Were they previously 40%? Were they previously 20%, 10%? Who knows? But um, they're pointing this out. So obviously, it has some significance. Stays of seven plus days made up almost half of all bookings. That is extraordinary. That means people are going places longer, and they're enjoying their lives. This obviously has to do with the work from home trend. This must be impacting it. People feel comfortable spending a week anywhere. And they're probably just taking an extra two or three weeks of travel a year. Absolutely fantastic for the economy and for people's lifestyles. This is the big benefit of remote work phenomenon that's occurred. And 20% of bookings were for stays of a month or longer. So one in five people were staying for a month or longer. Again, this has to be the new nomadic lifestyle. I'm guessing this skews older and very, uh, very old and very young. In other words, people under 30 without families, people over 60 with their kids, uh, you know, uh, empty nesters. I'm guessing that those are the two groups because people in the middle, you know, if you've got kids, you can't take advantage of this. Uh, as anybody who has kids knows, it's kind of the worst situation because you have to be home and you can't concentrate because you have kids coming home in the middle of the day. And it's, you know, I don't know if it's arguably worse, but it's, it's a different experience for people with families because you can't just go on the road and take advantage of this. Uh, I'm sure many of you are having that experience if you have kids in school. The only other numbers we have in terms of reference points here, Airbnb's S1, 2019 average nights per booking in North America was 3.7 days. So in 2019, the average was 3.7 days. Uh, who knows how many were 7%. And if you look, 20% of stays are over 28 days and 50% are seven days plus. So I would assume the 20s and the 50% the that are seven days plus are in the 20. But this is pretty... It means people are staying for a long period of time. That actually is wind in the sails of uh, Airbnb and their hosts. You know, if you're staying for the week, that means you're going to be, by definition, 
staying on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, the slow days, not just the weekends. And anybody who's running Airbnb knows you're busy on the weekends and, you know, you can't sell certain days of the week. Basically, the ones when kids are in school. Listen, when you're the founder, it's fun to trade war stories with other founders. Recently, Balloon CEO Amanda Greenberg, one of my awesome portfolio founders, told me how Vanta's SOC 2 solution helped her save an important deal in the final hours. If you don't know, Balloon sells a SaaS productivity and collaboration software package. It's brilliant. And when they needed 10 documents in place within 48 hours in order to close this deal, well, Vanta saved the day by supplying customizable templates and helping them through the process to close. So if you don't have your SOC 2 tight, you can't close major customers. And you know what? A lot of startups wait. Well, the waiting has to end. You have to work with Vanta's compliance software to make it easier to get and renew your SOC 2. They continuously test against technical and non-technical SOC 2 requirements, and they partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant within just two to four weeks compared to three to five months without Vanta. And guess what? Vanta's such a great partner, they're going to give you $1,000 off your sock too. Thanks for that, Vanta. Here's your call to action. Get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash twist. That's vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off. Well done, Vanta. People might be taking slightly less trips uh, in 2021 because of the pandemic, but they're staying longer. Uh, so that's pretty great. They've also been talking about their future roadmap. Uh, you saw Brian from Airbnb uh, say he was looking for ideas. I told him they should do an airline, like a membership airline. They stated they have three major goals for the future. Live anywhere on Airbnb. Kind of interesting. Uh, so long trip says unlock the next generation of hosts. Uh, that's interesting. Getting young people who have space to put their space up is uh, an interesting idea. And Airbnb becomes the ultimate host. Uh, and I guess that has to do with competing with what high end travelers like, which is service. So high end travelers are not apt to take Airbnbs because they don't have the ability to go to the spa. They don't have room service. They don't have a concierge. And those fancy things that people love about staying in a five or six star hotel. Who did Airbnb impact the most? Two and three star hotels. People who were going and trying to save a little bit of money. Maybe they were on a budget. They wanted a $200 a night, $300 a night or less uh, solution. And then Airbnb, of course, has $150, $100, $200 a night. Things that you just can't find in hotels unless they're scary and dirty. <laughs> so two and three star hotels were the ones who uh, were challenged. Let's dig into number three here. They become the ultimate host. Here's a direct quote from the earnings about becoming the ultimate host. Quote, we believe that Airbnb can be more than a marketplace that merely connects guests to hosts. Okay, so we could provide more things. Okay, fair enough. Uh, they're doing experiences, right? Uh, like tours and whatnot. They added that many years in. Our goal, again, quoting, is to provide the ultimate service for guests anticipating their needs and going above and beyond just like a good host. So they're referring to themselves as like a six, maybe a five star hotel, four star hotel or four seasons or Ritz, somewhere where they know your name, they know what newspaper you like, if you've ever stayed at these kind of hotels, uh, they kind of keep a dossier on you. If you like medium pillows, if you like lots of pillows, if you like the New York Times, Financial Times, they should have that in your profile on the computer. If you like tea, if whatever, you know, what time you want your turndown service, they'll try to accommodate you. So here, they're saying Airbnb might do that. That's interesting. Okay. Uh, how would they do that? I have some ideas by offering a more personalized service, we can dramatically improve the experience for millions of guests around the world. 
very interesting. And they mentioned personalized here. So I think the idea here of what they're going to do is imagine you filled out your profile, and you said, Listen, here's what I need in Airbnbs. I like to drink Coke Zero. Uh, that's my favorite beverage. So it asks your favorite beverages. You say Coke Zero and uh, sparkling water. Um, then it says, hey, tell us about your internet or work needs. You say, listen, I really want an Ethernet cable because uh, uh, and I want 40 megabits up or down because I'm going to be doing video conferences and I want at least two desks to work on. And I love standing desks. And um, I also like on-site deep tissue massages. Great. Uh, now, imagine you have that in there and uh, you're looking through the top inventory and They've set up in major cities with the super hosts, hey, put a massage table in a closet somewhere and just tell us where it is. And now in your profile, you're a super host in Napa, you're a super host in Tahoe, and you have a massage table on site. Very interesting, right? The folding ones. And those hosts have agreed that they'll go fill the refrigerator. So you say, hey, listen, I like these are the snacks I like to have around. Imagine the super host bought you those and then just put them on your bill. Pretty interesting, right? Or put them there and then if you drank them you would pay by consumption even better and then they said to superhost hey you know people like standing desks and they like ethernet cables if you have these check them off so these profiles could be a big win for everybody if if airbnb had this you know i would be apt when i go to a great city if i'm alone i just want to stay in a great hotel um i love you know interesting uh i like the action at a hotel when I'm traveling with a group, obviously, I like to get an Airbnb because I like to have a kitchen and I got kids or I've got a posse with me. It's more fun to have the kitchen to cook. But if they could match what I get when I go to hotels, which is, you know, the hotels I stay at, typically, I'll stay at like a Ritz uh, or the proper hotel when I'm in Austin or, you know, you know I, I, I don't say it necessarily the most expensive. I, I kind of like the funky, most interesting ones. And um, yeah, they'll do stuff like this for you. If you need an Ethernet cable, they'll make sure it's working, yada, yada. So I think profiles could be a huge win. Uh, we were investors in a company uh, that was a concierge service on your phone, and they would sell the concierge service to hotels that were two and three stars that didn't have a concierge. And they would put in your room, hey, if you need a concierge, you can talk to this person, you'd have one concierge for all of San Diego, where you could have a team of them in San Diego and all the two and three star hotels could compete and have those. And that was an idea that actually Hotel Tonight copied uh, the company that did it, that company's no longer around. But Hotel Tonight stole the idea. Uh, from this company. And uh, that was kind of a bummer. But you can't uh, copyright or trademark just an idea, you know, it's the execution that you can typically patent trademark. And so I do think uh, a concierge like local service could do well with a subscription. I've always thought that nobody's ever made it work. I get pitched on it all the time. Uh, but I think some of these like magic haven't even worked. And they I don't know if magic works or not, or operator those services. I don't know. Has anybody ever used them? Let me know, producers at This Week in Startups. So one final stat, over the past two years, average trip legs have increased 15%. So they, they did have buried in that Q4 report, the average trip. So there's a lot of numbers here. And when you are assessing a stock or a business that's private, just write all the numbers down and then start dividing them and then figuring out what happens if they go 10x or they double them, how to cost change. This is the kind of mental model building I like to do. Um, listen, I'm not like some MBA. But I like to build a mental model. And then I like to look at the product. That's my method for investing in a company. What do I think of Airbnb? I think it's gonna be a trillion dollar company. I think they're gonna 10x. I think there'll be a billion people using the service uh, at some point, I could easily see 250 million, 
500 million people enjoying these services because if they had 70 they had 300 million already so yeah i was talking about the quarter so 300 million a year uh, yeah i could see it being a billion a year i could see a billion trips a year no problem i don't know how many users that is but i could easily see them getting to a billion trips a year that is extraordinary and uh, you know is there any way for somebody to break into this juggernaut's marketplace and disrupt them i don't know the only thing i can think of is if somebody made a service and this would be a really good idea where the host instead of playing a percentage paid a management fee uh, a fee so they just paid a like a SaaS fee 25 bucks a month to be listed and he had a million people listed on uh, your directory it'd be 300 million a year in revenue so you could cap your own revenue so i could see somebody doing that like an ebay a craigslist uh, a hotel provider like if you were a hotel provider and you wanted to kill airbnb the power move would be to make a service where it was 100 bucks a year to list your company 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year. And if the hotel didn't have inventory, it showed you what was there. And I think actually, correct me if I'm wrong, folks, but Bonvoy, which used to be Starwood and plus Marriott, I think they actually have a brand that lets you rent homes and Marriott now has homes and villas curated by Marriott, which is, yeah homes and villas by marriott international very interesting right uh you're starting to see now people looking at the um airbnb business and saying how do we put our brand around it well marriott you feel safe right and i guess marriott either owns or works with these curated homes and you can use your bonvoy pounds your, your bonvoy.com points on these and so i've looked at these and um i actually was looking at it one time and the inventory seemed to not be exclusive so i think they're they're cherry picking the best of airbnb and putting it on here that would be the only person i could see really challenging airbnb or the hotel chains making a free version of this or close to free where they just gutted airbnb's revenue but again airbnb is a bit of a cult uh the people who are hosts are really loyal to airbnb kind of got like an Etsy vibe, right? You want to be part of it. So congratulations to the team over there. Yeah, again, I think no problem getting to a billion stays, no problem becoming a, I, I would say no problem, it's a long way to go. But I could see this company 5xing from here and, you know, starting to hit that trillion dollar club in the next couple of decades. Hiring software engineers can take a long time. It can take months in some cases, but gun.io is going to change that for you right now. They're a developer hiring platform. That's what they specialize in. And here's what makes them different. Their candidates are expertly vetted and matched to you by a team of senior engineers, not by an algorithm, not by a recruiter. No, Gun.io developers have eight plus years of experience building products like yours, like mine, and they're used to working directly with founders and executive teams. They know what it's like to work at a startup. So Gun.io can get you a candidate in as quickly as 48 hours. And the average time to hire is only two weeks. Most people take a little more time, right? 90 percent of the candidates are u.s based and they have a network of vetted international candidates as well if you're looking to hire from other markets or different time zones there are two ways to use gun.io one is you can work with a freelancer and enjoy gun.io's ongoing support services they'll handle the billing and swap out talent for free at any time or you can hire a remote developer directly from the gun.io network for half of a typical recruiter's fees i'm not kidding gun.io is the easiest way for startups to find and hire world-class developers so get 250 off your first hire at gun.io slash twist give it a shot report back tell me how it went gun.io slash twist all right everybody in somewhat tech related news here in san francisco the board of education uh, was facing a recall if this recall was successful it would have been the first one in a uh, hundred years that was successful it's incredibly controversial 
Now, why is this important? Why is it related to This Week in Startups? Well, it turns out uh, San Francisco's part of Silicon Valley uh, now. It didn't always, it wasn't always that way, but San Francisco really tech embraced the city in a major way. And the far, 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 when I say far left, I'm a, you know, kind of moderate. The far, far, far left is really uh, a frustrating group of people to the other community members in San Francisco. And they went on a process of not allowing kids to come back to school during COVID. Uh, and even though we had some of the lowest rates in, of COVID and the highest rates of vaccination in the country, we were the slowest to let kids back in schools. And uh, the board was focused on things like renaming the schools because they had previous presidents uh, and uh, getting rid of merit based admission systems, which is a real trigger for high performing Silicon Valley people including uh, Gary Tan, uh, an, um, uh, an investor from Initialized Capital. He's been on the program a bunch of times. And my bestie, David Sachs, um, who is a San Francisco resident and who was also um, uh, offended by the lack of performance, really, and the focus of these board members. And so, uh, although there were some right-wing people, I guess, donating to this from out-of-state, the, they tried to frame it as an out-of-state Republican movement. And when the numbers came in, it was quite shocking. You had over uh, 80 90,000 people voting to recall these three members, uh, Gabriela Lopez, uh, Feuga Moliga, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correct, and Allison Collins, who was a real interesting character, who said some pretty horrible thing about horrible things about Asian people, um, and who actually sued the uh, Board of Education Supervisors. They were called for between 72% and 79% of the vote. In other words, the left in San Francisco is throwing out the far, far, far left, what, what, what you would really describe as somewhere between socialist and not democratic socialist, like social socialist and communist worldviews. Uh, I've seen it up close and personal. It's, it's really trippy uh, <laughs> to use a San Francisco term. But this is um, uh, perhaps a milestone in the history of San Francisco because uh, tech people who were largely disengaged from local politics have become hyper engaged and they have engaged the Asian community, which has been the target of a lot of specific hate crimes in the city. And a general, uh, I think uh, a lot of Asians have been vocal about feeling singled out because of high performing children in these school systems. And essentially, what we might have seen uh, with this recall is a turning point in the history of San Francisco, where the city starts moving from, you know, uh, a kind of socialist, communist uh, driven group of people to maybe uh, more tech people getting involved, more high performing people and competency uh, and, a, and a focus on performance, which has been, I think, the city's Achilles heel. The people running for office have been really strange, um, you know, to uh, see them operate. And I think a lot of people would argue they're incompetent. So Gary Tan's tweet, common sense is rising again. It's a good night, but just the one of many to come. San Franciscans united to send a message to political to the political machine tonight, serve the people or see the door. We did it rest up tomorrow is a new day. The fight has just become be, has just begun. Gary Tan uh, grew up food insecure as a native resident was in all of the uh, advanced programs and is the product of you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area. David Sachs, uh, and he's done obviously very well for himself. David Sachs says every child deserves a high quality education school boards and administrators work for parents and students not the other way around competence matters more than ideology. That's what San, Fran San Francisco voters affirm tonight. Thank you.
uh, recall SFBOE. So uh, these board members are out. London Breed, our mayor, who said she's done with the BS. She literally said the word uh, in a press conference. Uh, it's going to select the three replacements. And she's trying to, um, in related news, London Breed is trying to do a state of emergency to clean up the tenderloin and the fentanyl crisis where we have 10 overdoses a day. And I think two or three of them tragically result in a death. Here is her statement that she released. The voters of this city have delivered a clear message that the school board, the school board must focus on the essentials of delivering a well-run school system above all else. San Francisco is a city that believes in the value of big ideas, but those ideas must be built on the foundation of a government that does the essentials well. I want to recognize all the parents who tirelessly organized and advocated in the last year. Elections can be difficult. But these parents were fighting for what matters most. And you can see the yes recalls now. Allison Collins, over 100,000 citizens of San Francisco voted to recall her. I can tell you, there are no more than 10,000 Republicans in there. Those are all Democrats and very left-leaning Democrats who are voting these people out for incompetence. And, uh, you know, the challenge, I think, for San Francisco and for the community here is who is going to take their place? We need competent people, maybe even people who have had an incredible success in technology and business to then go try and take some of these uh, seats and to work uh, in government and do a tour and, and try to fix stuff because... My Lord, these people are uh, super unqualified. And it's great to see uh, a change in the city, which most people are leaving uh, in tech and have given up on people. It's really a tragedy to see the number of restaurants that have shut down, the number of stores that have shut down and the number of empty apartments uh, and people uh, don't want to come here anymore. I've thrown events here for uh, over a decade, we're bringing probably 10 20,000 people a year to use San Francisco, and nobody wants to come here anymore. So we're doing our events in Miami, LA, and Austin and New York going forward. And we're not going to do them in San Francisco because I can't convince people to come here. They don't want to deal with the crime, the homelessness, the despair, the chaos. And so Chesa Budin is uh, likely next on this recall campaign. And uh, I think it's a pretty nice to see tech people taking an interest and supporting change uh, and competence, right? I think that's going to be the high order bit here. All right, next up, speaking of competence, uh, my interview, uh, which we do about every six months with Keith Raboy in his eighth appearance. He talks fast, he says really interesting things, and his predictions are right much more often than they're wrong. You're going to want to listen to this one twice, and you're going to want to take, if you've got it on high speed, we're talking fast. So this might be the rare instance where you don't want a one and a half X. You might even want to go 0.75 speed on this one to catch all the nuggets of gold. With that, in his eighth appearance, Keith Raboy. Listen, good sleep is the ultimate game changer, don't I know it? And it's nature's best medicine. There is nothing like getting a great night's sleep. You know when I get a great night's sleep, because I've been sleeping on my eight sleep, and you see me on the pod. I'm crisp. I got great insights. And according to eight sleep, consistently good sleep can do the following. It's going to help reduce the likelihood of serious health issues. It's going to decrease the risk of heart disease, lower your blood pressure, and even reduce the risk of Alzheimer's. But over 30% of Americans struggle with sleep, and temperature is one of the main causes. So now there's a solution, the 8 Sleep Pod Pro Cover. Pod Pro Cover is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. It pairs dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking. And... You can add the cover to any mattress right away. It's easy. And the temperature of the cover will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. So I like it nice and cool. I get a nice sleep when it's nice and cool. 
Yeah, the other person, they like it toasty. So no more thermostat wars. The results are amazing. Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, and it reduces sleep interruptions by 40%. You're going to get overall much more restful sleep in my experience. So here is your call to action. Go to 8sleep.com slash twist for exclusive President's Day savings through February 22nd. Save big and sleep more with 8sleep. Now shipping within the USA, Canada, and the UK. That's 8sleep.com slash twist for those exclusive President's Day savings. All right, everybody, it's time for our check-in with the one, the only, Keith Raboy. In his eighth appearance here at This Week in Startups, we love talking to Keith because he is one of the greatest operators of our generation in Silicon Valley, one of the great investors as well, and thinkers. You may not agree with him on everything, I certainly don't, but you will come out of any conversation with Keith thinking at a fast pace uh, and uh, perhaps inspired. I enjoy our time together. Welcome back to the program, Keith. Thank you. It's great to be here for the eighth time. Pretty great. When you know when you get to 10, you get the official uh, blazer. You get the This Week in Startups uh, blazer. We, I want to get right into uh, a bunch of the stuff that you predicted. I had my researchers. I have three full-time producers on this podcast now. And they went back and they looked at some of your predictions. Greatest hits, if you will, Keith. Um, Get ready. Break your impact. (laughs) (laughs) Own your words time. And and we even looked at some tweets. In mid-November of 2021, this past November, you, almost to the day, predicted the top of the market. Our friend Ari Levy over at the uh, CNBC, really smart cat, says, amazing to see how many experts on crypto and tech valuations are also experts on inflation. And Keith replied, to be fair, valuations and inflation are directly connected. That makes sense. And Ari said, but didn't we have an explosion in valuations over the past decade? And uh, you answered, this is also a crash, the internet bubble, FYI. And you said, ah, so are you calling the top? And you responded, yes. What were the signals at that point you felt it was a top? And then I guess here we are in uh, February of 2022. The markets have repriced many shiny objects <laughs> brutally. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll talk about what we see going forward. But take us back to your moment in time. What were the things to you that signal a top in the market? Well, I don't try to predict tops or bottoms of markets. It's just a function of interest rates. Interest rates are predictable to some extent based upon economic, macroeconomic factors like inflation. And so as soon as inflation became starkly obvious to everybody, there was no doubt that the Federal Reserve was going to have to raise interest rates. The fact that we had inflation was pretty obvious to me in January of last year. You'll find a tweet early January when I predicted the inflation. But in any event, um, the government, the bureaucrats, the Biden administration were trying to dismiss inflation as quote-unquote transitory, which never made any sense. But by November, even the defenders of the transitory argument had given up. And so as soon as it was obvious, inflation was taking off in the United States, interest rates had to go up. And basically what interest rates do to technology stocks is they immediately crash the valuation because most technology stocks, if almost all technology stocks, basically generate profits in the future. All companies are valued to some extent by profits they generate in the future. It's called basically just kind of cash. So you take the profits that companies predicted, projected to generate over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you discount that back to the present value. And basically, you're discounting mostly by the value, time value of money, which is a function of interest rates. So as soon as you change the interest rates, you're dividing by a different denominator. Anybody who's never you know, done division 
from the time you're like three years old to the time you're 30, if you change the denominator, you're going to have a very different answer very quickly. So yeah. instead of dividing by two, you're dividing by six. All of a sudden, the same stock looks very unattractive on a valuation mm-hmm. basis. And so this is inevitable. If you want the advanced version of this, you take a single capital markets theory class. And, you know, that's why I'm, I'm somewhat surprised that most people haven't figured this out. It's not, it's, it's sort of like we've made the world too confusing. If you just go back to first principles, it's a lot easier to get to the right answer. And if you just strip away all the noise, uh, first principles work pretty well. And this is stuff, rudimentary stuff people have been taught for like a century. Yeah. Pretty basic. And then on top of that, we had uh, what we saw on the dot com. Uh, market or even in real estate, which was non-traditional market participants flooding into an asset class. We had it in 2008 or before uh, that crash with people maybe who shouldn't have had mortgages doing all kinds of funky mortgages. And in 2000, you know, or slightly before 2000, we had gas station attendants or your, you know, newspaper delivery boy talking to you about which dot com stocks to buy. And this time, you know, maybe we had crypto speculation, stimmy checks. What does it take? Maybe you could talk a little bit about new market participants driving up that last stage of a bubble. And and do we think that that's worked itself out or not? Sure. So I think that's that can amplify the fundamental trend. But at the end of the day, the valuation inflation was being driven by interest rates that were basically close to zero. And so there was no discount to future profits. And when there's no discount to future profits, companies that generate profits in theory are going to be valued equally or better than companies that generate them in practice. The, the, the point that is a little bit more subtle is in 1999, the Federal Reserve did raise interest rates, I believe, five or six times over about an 18-month period of time. And that is exactly what precipitated the internet bubble collapsing. People have a lot of revisionist history about the bubble collapsing, but it had nothing to do with tech. It had all to do with Alan Greenspan of the Federal Reserve raising interest rates and actually driving down the cost of capital and the discount of future profits that many technology companies would almost surely have earned. Hmm. When we look at the shakeout today um, and looking forward, we've seen, you know, certain SaaS companies were getting 50, 100 times revenue um, in the public markets and in private markets. What are we seeing uh, in this disjoint between what happens in the public market and what happens in what you and I do every day, which is seed early stage, you know, fund early stage companies? What's happening there? Because there's this overhang and people talk about the delay in the valuations going downstream uh, or the valuation corrections, right? The compression of valuations. So let's talk about that. Are we seeing the compression yet? Yeah, the compression on growth rounds has already happened. Um, days on the market is one early indication of that. So over the last two years, typically as Founders Fund runs a growth fund, we would typically have a few days to make a decision about a new investment. Currently, for growth rounds, even for very attractive companies and potential investments, we have days to weeks to make an investment decision. Just like in real estate, when a house is on the market for a long time, it suggests that there's a mismatch between valuation expectations and reality. And that's basically already happened in the private markets for later stage rounds. That has not yet really translated to seed and series A investments yet. And at some point, if the market, if the current market correction continues in May, but typically we're not really funding a seed or a series A company on some multiple anyway. So insofar as you apply a different multiple, it shouldn't really change the answer. Series Bs and Cs are somewhere in the middle where companies typically do have revenue and people are applying 
comparable multiples that are derived from, or at least inspired by the public market comparables. And so they may get impacted sooner rather than later. To put some context around your SaaS point, uh, over the summer, last summer, private market companies probably were valued at 50x, sometimes as high as 70x. Uh, yeah, multiple I did see that myself. Yeah. Uh, the, histor- the historical norm is 12.7x. So there's a long way down. I think right now, probably the blend of the public markets is around 30. But 12.7 is still very different than yeah. 30. A lot more medicine to be taken. For the companies that did take advantage of those uh, peak multiples, a private company, let's say they were raising at 50, 60, 70. What is the best course of action? You as a board member see somebody raise 100 million, 250 million at these extraordinary valuations. What's the best? way to catch up if it does go down to a 20x multiple uh, what's your advice to the founder and the management team well fundamentally it depends very much on what your burn rate is so right. if you're a profitable company or not burning a lot of money it doesn't matter that much because you don't need more capital so you don't have to remark your price if you have a high burn rate though and you're going to run out or exhaust the capital you previously raised at a very high sticker price it's going to be difficult slash not slash impossible to raise money except under a very painful process known as a down round. And founders, employees, even investors really don't like down rounds. Mm. So a lot of these companies are going to hit a wall very fast and very hard. Typically, changing your burn rate rapidly is extremely painful. So if you have a high burn rate today, most companies cannot bring that to a moderate or low burn rate very quickly. Mm. And we see Peloton making big cuts. And obviously... When the pandemic hit, we saw Airbnb, Uber, DoorDash, a bunch of people just say, hey, you know what, 25%, big lop it off, we're just going to take the medicine now. I think Airbnb between contractors and full-time employees probably had a net cut of almost 40%. Wow. I mean, and if we look at that as a decision-making process in the heat of the pandemic, in hindsight, how good of a decision was it in your mind? It's amazing. Um, uh, Airbnb is about to release earnings, so everybody can look uh, at the performance. You know, two years later, and see what an epic company and what an incredible you know CEO Brian is. Uh, so, I think a lot of companies were like look, looking into the abyss, yeah. and they decided to make decisive changes that they probably would have been too terrified to make. Hmm. And many of these companies made very significant, healthy changes that have turned out to be very successful with the benefit of hindsight, but also probably were the right decision in the first place. And when you say the right decision in the first place, when we look at these companies during a peak market, nobody likes to not grow their team inside a company. Nobody doesn't want to add headcount. So everybody's fighting for more headcount. Everybody's fighting for more budget. In fact, there's probably many tech companies out there that if they cut 20, 30%, they would be operating more efficiently and obviously, uh, you know, get to profitability quicker. So there's a lack of discipline maybe when a market gets this hot? Yeah, I think over the last decade, um, tech companies became very bloated uh, on average. And I think part of it's a lesson from Twitter, which underhired engineers initially and then you know sacrificed a little bit of its potential because of that. And so a lot of founders learn lessons from that. But I think we don't... We haven't divided um, accomplishments by employees for a very long time. And under a more stressful system where capital is less abundant and more expensive, I think people will be much more judicious about hiring people. Larger companies, I'm sure most of the people that work there don't do anything. Um, They're very complacent and really are just taking paychecks. 
but no one's really wanted to scrutinize a 90% gross margin business when capital is incredibly cheap. People will definitely start scrutinizing and building more lean, more efficient machines. Yeah. When the money is freely flowing, you know, and, and you're and you got a competitive landscape, sure, grow the top line. But at some point, these companies are going to be valued based on their cash flow, right? Their profitability. At some point that happens, right? Yeah, no, you're always eventually valued on your profitability and the potential profitability. And then discounted by two things, the time value of money and the risk, the probability that you can achieve those cash flows. Yeah. You said uh, on July 13th, I pull up the tweet here in 2021, biggest change in the venture landscape now. There are no PC funds with pricing discipline. All of us have caved. So do we feel like this market correction has instituted some discipline on the capital allocator class? And how far along are we in that process? Or are people still placing bets like drunken sailors? So I believe there's been two major corrections. So I'll speak for Founders Fund first. We are definitely much more disciplined um, than we were 6, 9, 12 months ago. So we, we will not fund things at valuations that don't make any sense given the public market comparables. Uh, second, I believe that because a lot of the people inflating the valuations are cross, what are known as crossover funds, meaning they have massive exposure and positions in the public market and a micro exposure as a percentage of their total assets in the private markets because they have to remark their portfolio every day. Mm. They can no longer afford to be extending very expensive offers. Think of Tiger, Co2, et cetera. So like Tiger, for example, last time I looked up the numbers, they had about a $62 billion public market position and about $8 billion of private investments. So when that $62 billion gets shrunk and you know to 40, that has to affect how they value the private portfolio. And as a percentage, you just went from being an eighth to being a fifth, you know, 20%. Which is also a problem because you may have rules uh, uh, in your fund structure that uh, require you to have a certain ratio. Got it. So when they came in uh, for the last two years and paid these high prices, what was your thinking when you saw them coming in and maybe coming over the top of a founder fund growth or an Andreessen Horowitz growth fund? When you had these new entrants, were you like, okay, we have to keep up with these folks or okay, maybe we sell into this? Good question. Um, I don't think we ever really wanted to keep up, but there's a, there's a gap. There's like some ban. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's say we're 25% more disciplined or tw- whatever. We can't be 50% and still um, mm-hmm. work with the best founders on the planet. So I think there, there was you know, some pricing pressure that the people who weren't fitting prices definitely posed a real challenge to our normal discipline. We're not immune from the entire world. That said, they offer a different value proposition. Tiger's offering you money. And for the most part, I don't think of my job as offering founders money and certainly not solely money. I expect to provide, uh, I think founders expect me to provide advice, counsel, wisdom, feedback, interview assessments of executives, closing help on assessments. Tiger does literally none of those things. Yeah. So the price, the pricing of my dollars investing shouldn't be the same as Tiger's in any possible scenario anyway. But I think they were basically pursuing a portfolio strategy, which is you don't really care about the price of any one asset. You care about the portfolio construction as a whole. And in a hot market, let's say a decade-long hot market, which was 2010 to 2020, having the right portfolio will trump a lot of micro-pricing decisions. We at Founders Fund are in what we call the, like our brand, 
We're in the business of backing the most extraordinary founders on the planet, period, what we call internally end of one companies. So Elon found SpaceX. That's the end of one company. Nobody else in 2005 was going to build SpaceX. That's what our job is. So we're trying to get the alpha, not trying to have a beta portfolio. Here's another prediction for you dovetails nicely back in February of 2019, episode 905, a classic you can listen to right now in the archives. <laughs> Keith said his biggest concern was how the Fed would react in the next crisis. We're definitely on borrowed time, you said, 35 minutes into the program. Another quote, the government has the Federal Reserve and a bunch of decision makers have turned most of the dials already. So when there's a blip, the tools at their disposal to modulate the blip have already been used. So what that means is the ability to sort of soften the blow of some crisis isn't really available. We've sort of spent that capital and hence the reaction is going to be much more severe because we won't be able to deaden the blow. Uh, and that scares me. And it scares a lot of my smart friends because they know how valuable those tools are and why they've been successful. So it's a pretty good analysis of 2019, considering in 2020. Yeah, actually, I forgot, I forgot that. That oh, actually is pretty that. good. Uh, so here's exactly what's happening right now. The only tool the Fed has at its disposal is basically to raise interest rates. The problem with raising interest rates is you may trigger a recession, which is not good for anybody. Mm -hmm. But there's no other more calibrated Printing techniques. Money really. one. Well, they tried that. Well, they, yeah, they, they, they have tried that. Yeah, and then Biden tried giving away money, which just made the problem worse. Um, so yeah, like er, er, there really aren't a lot of great answers right now. But inflation is is terrible. It eats away the real wages of normal people. So you take you know the hundred million most vulnerable people in the United States, and all inflation does is undermine their work, undermines their savings, and undermines their equity, and it undermines the value of going to work every day. So you have to stop inflation. Uh, so the only real technique left to stop inflation in the United States would be to raise interest rates. There are other countries where you could put the government on a diet known as austerity. Hmm. European Union tends to do this. Our, our system of government doesn't really easy allow, doesn't really allow for the enforcement of austerity measures. Hmm. So there really isn't a lot, a lot of choice here. If I'm unpacking there, the reason is it seems like there was, you know, we had Clinton who was really into balancing the budget. That was kind of a, a unique uh, thing in Democrat land. And then Republicans have becoming, you know, money spending maniacs as well. And so it, are we ever going to go back to the, you know, balance the budget Clinton days in your mind? And should that be a priority? Or is it just impossible to do? Because how do you get elected if you're not throwing money onto people's heads like we did during the pandemic well if you read the federalist papers and you talk and you read anything about the founding history of this country the biggest fear was always that we would people would spend money or promise money to get votes and so one of the reasons why we don't have a direct democracy perhaps the single biggest reason we don't have a direct democracy is to avoid that now that people have been successful to some extent by promising money for votes it's hard to unwind that genie that said, eventually you have to pay the dividend. Eventually there's a cost to giving people money. Mm. And we're about to see, we're seeing like the last year, we've really suffered through more inflation than the Fed admits. The Fed also changed its methodology somewhat subtly to sort of minimize inflation. But fundamentally, real people on the streets know exactly what's happening, which is every time they go to the grocery store, every time they go to the gas station, every time they go out to eat, they're paying a lot more money. And that's inflation. Got it. If we look at startups, does inflation have any impact on early stage startups where you and I are building them? And should any early stage founders change their behavior in any way 
based on the market concerns we're talking about uh, right now? So in, inflation would typically uh, affect wages. The reality is most of the employees at the early stage startups we work at are more like engineers and designers who are paid and compensated at very high rates to start. So yeah. inflation will affect them too, but it's probably not the primary driver. The cost of goods of like a DoorDash delivery, Uber driver, mm-hmm. is going to significantly change and has changed. And that means the price of Uber, the price of a Lyft just has to become expensive because yeah. the primary cost is significantly higher. And until there's autonomous driving, there's no way around that for Uber or Lyft. Mm. Yeah. And the, the, so those costs go up. And I think the... the, the it's amazing to look at the narrative around DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, all these services was these gig economy workers were being taken advantage of in some way, even though they were picking freely that job, instead of Starbucks, Walmart, and being a waiter or a busboy or whatever, all of those jobs, massive amounts of opening people elected to have the freedom to do gig economy. And now they're getting paid 20, 30, $40 an hour. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the free market and the, the gig economy and, and how it's basically done more than what Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were asking for. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, freedom and flexibility are very attractive to normal people. So there's a reason why people chose to be a DoorDash dasher or an Uber driver. And it's not just a function of the marginal economics, it's a schedule flexibility. So if you don't want to work evenings, you don't have to work evenings. If you don't want to work mornings, you don't have to work mornings. You don't want to work weekends. Most other jobs have requirements, minimum hours or certain shifts. And Uber and DoorDash allowed for flexibility. And so the politicians who are criticizing the DoorDashes and Ubers of the world were basically denying people choice. Now, in the current market, those hourly wages are, are significantly higher than many other options. That doesn't mean that everybody will switch to the gig economy because some people do prefer predictability and you know certain benefits. And, and some people should have the flexibility to choose what's best for them and their family. And that, that was the main point. And I think most voters agree with that. But the cost of service of an Uber and Lyft absolutely is going to be more expensive. There is no doubt that if you take the primary input and you increase the wages by 50% over two years, the cost of an Uber is going to look extremely expensive compared to what we were used to in 2016. Let's look at a business that in February of 2019, when you were on the program, you said Instagram is absolutely the future of Facebook. Facebook would be pretty much toast without it. 39 minutes into episode 905. <laughs> well, yeah, it's kind of a layup, but I'm giving it to you. No clear path foul. You went to the basket, you put it right up there up against the glass, and, and it was a fine layup. But let's talk about, hey, you are, I think, Sheryl Sandberg, David Sachs, and yourself, I would say three of the, you know, 10 best operators in the history of Silicon Valley. Tim Cook would go in there as well. You're, you're known for your operational ability. He's better. <laughs> I mean, we'll listen. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, I would say if you were in that position, I think you could do uh, a relatively close to a Tim Cook job. We'll get to Apple in a minute. But for Facebook, this has turned into a disaster of epic proportions. What do you make of this series of decision making by this company recently? And how did they come to these decisions? I think Facebook is in a really difficult situation. The political environment will not allow them to buy their way out of this box. So they're not going to be able to use their assets to drive innovation. They're going to have to actually innovate, which is not the cultural DNA of the company. Mark 
um, is more like Bill Gates than Steve Jobs. And explain what that means for people. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So Bill was one of the shrewdest businessmen of all time and exploited opportunities to basically build Microsoft. Steve was more of an innovator and basically saw the future and then created it. And the things that Facebook's committing to are more innovation and less business acumen. Mm. And they don't have the right team to drive innovation creatively. Mm. And they really can't hire that team right now because of the brand associated with the overall Facebook. And they can't buy it, at least in expensive doses, because the regulators won't allow them to. Mm. That's a very tricky position. Wow. I don't know what the answer is, but I think your fund I think the market cap is reflecting people realizing this. Yeah. So you have to to recap that I think it's pretty good analysis. Obviously, they're not allowed to buy stuff. They've had so much influence on politics and so much, you know, toxicity there, even if it didn't affect the election. It, there's a lot of toxicity there. And I think it's a lot of the reason why Lena Khan and other people are being put in positions is to stop them from buying the next Instagram and continuing their power base. People do not want to see them acquire power. Therefore, they're not going to be allowed to acquire a DoorDash or a Peloton or anything. And he's a memetic machine. He has been very good, like Bill Gates, copied Windows and, you know, Office from WordPerfect and Lotus 123 with Excel. And thus, the same thing Zuckerberg models his career in, in many ways on Bill Gates. So now you're in this dilemma. Nobody wants to go, anybody who's an innovative person is going to start their own company in a market like this with so much capital available, or they'll work for a company like Apple that is truly innovative. So where do they, what do they do? Do they just start? Do you think Facebook might lay off 20% of their employees this year? I mean, they're sitting on a ton of cash. They print money. They probably should, uh, but that's not going to solve the problem fundamentally. It may play for time. Uh Fundamentally, you still need a creative, you need a a strategy that matches your skill set. And they don't have the creative skill set. They can't acquire it. They can't hire it. And you can't optimize. So Facebook, the people that have succeeded there are fundamentally optimization people. Yes. They take something that's working and optimize it. And optimization compounds its magic, especially at scale. So it's yes. a great strategy. But when you need to reinvent yourself, it doesn't work at all. Huh. And in fact, you actually have the wrong culture and the wrong DNA when you have to go back to the drawing board. So it's actually worse than not than having those people around. And so this, this is basically the fundamental problem. Facebook, if you think it was a mashup of Friendster and MySpace. Yep. So you know you, you probably used Friendster back in the day. Yeah, yeah. And you know the right the right the right product optimization will trump a lot of things. And then when you have a platform like Bill realized he had with Windows, then you throw you know Microsoft Office right on top. That's great. That's what it's like brilliant. It, it really is. Um, but when you have to go back to the drawing board, and you know that's why Microsoft missed mobile. Hmm. Yeah. They, they had all the raw ingredients, but they had the wrong approach and culture. You know, they had 600 to 6,000 probably people somewhere in that zone working on mobile. Mm. They couldn't, they couldn't ship, you know, any product that was reasonable. Yeah. So is VR and, and their efforts there going to pay off in your mind? Would you place that bet? Would you make a billion dollar, $10 billion bet with founders fund money on that future? Definitely not. Yeah. Okay. So they're on. The, they're off to a wild goose chase. Yeah. Well, not. Well, there is a question of is there any VR future? That's one question. Okay. And the second question is, can Facebook capture it? Ah. So okay. there's two two different questions. Yeah. You can 
probably, I would multiply the probabilities if you're asking a question about getting into a specific company. Is like, is there a there there? And then can this company capture it? Yeah. So you, you multiply X times Y and you get a very low probability very quickly. But I think the probability that Facebook captures the VR moment is very unlikely. You also have to ship a full feature movie. So, you know, I always talk about startups in terms of movies. I've been on your show a few times, talk about my metaphor of producing a movie. You cannot produce a lightweight fidelity of VR and expect real people to interrupt their lives and stop going outside and stop hanging out with their friends and instead using VR unless it's really impressive. And that means building a full product first. And that's like building a whole new phone or a whole new iPad. And it's not really in the day, DNA of Facebook. But it is in the DNA of Apple. And Apple is clearly working on an AR headset. Those goggles, Apple goggles will be out. If you had to place your money on one of four companies, or let's say two of four companies to be the, you know, the number one, the number two player in the space, you got Microsoft, you got Google, you got Apple, and you got Facebook, Facebook doing Oculus, Microsoft is doing uh, HoloLens. Google just reannounced they're doing something they, that came out of left field. And then uh, you, of course, have Apple uh, with goggles. Who's your number one and number two? Apple, Microsoft, and Netflix yes. would be three. Oh, wow. I had Apple, Microsoft, Netflix, number three. Well, they at least understand content and okay. experiences, and they've reinvented the company successfully at least one time before. Sure, they have. Great point. Microsoft has obviously has a gaming platform that is similar to where mm. you want to go yes. uh, in VR. Uh, they don't have as much consumer DNA typically as you would typ uh, otherwise like. Mm. Uh, to pull this off, but they have the HoloLens, you know, Minecraft, side. Xbox, yeah, and, yeah, and now you Xbox plus games. That's Activision a pretty interesting combination. Yeah. Activation. Well, that's I assume where they're going. Actually, yeah. that acquisition. So that's a you know a pretty solid foundation. Actually, yeah. if you were to build into this future, Apple, I am sure will get many pieces correct. I still don't know if consumers are going to vote with their feet. But Apple definitely understands how hardware, software, and content interact. Yes. Yes. Here is... Okay. They bring me and you in and uh, say, hey, we're going to do this weekend retreat. Give us some ideas for Facebook. S it's anything they could try. Anything. Take a minute to think about it. I'm going to give you my first one. My first one wow. is... They, yeah, go with They just like throw... No bad ideas. We, we are just <laughs> going to throw a billion dollars at 10 things. Just give us some ideas here because we're... We're up against it. My first idea is to really go after revenue sharing with creators a la YouTube has. YouTube gives 45, 50, they, they give 55% yep. to creators. I'm Zuckerberg. I'm Sheryl Sandberg. I say we are going to give 80% of all revenue to people who apply to this creator class. And we are going to splashy cashy. We're going to give huge tips. We're going to send money everywhere to the New York Times, to Kara Swisher's podcast to you know mr beast everybody can get 80 percent of the revenue if they publish their content here and we are going to be the most supportive of creators ever what do you think that's my first one it's not a bad idea i don't know okay. if it's sufficient um so i like doubling down on the creator economy and the future of creatives i don't know if just the economic transformation will be enough so i think you need a multi-pronged strategy i think you okay. absolutely need a lot of the government to shut down tiktok immediately Yes. So get rid, get rid of competition. That's yes. the first thing. That's a great one. Because um, they're not going to win. They're not going to win on the product merits for TikTok. They've already lost that generation. Absolutely. But there's lots of very strong reasons to get rid of TikTok in the United States, which would obviously help Facebook indirectly. Major. The creative, the creative, the creative expansion that you're suggesting would 
leverage the Instagram platform. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a very smart strategy. And YouTube and other creative platforms have their own issues, yep. uh, challenges. Um, and so I think it's not a bad idea. I just don't know if it gets you all the way into the future. Yeah, no, just we're, we're putting ideas on the board. And I think, you know, going saying, hey, listen, TikTok is a lot worse for teens than we are. You need to go after them first. And the Chinese are running a spy operation here, obviously. On yes, all these people. Other than that, so, it's perfect. <laughs> other than that, keep carrying on. I mean, the fact that, I mean, two presidents couldn't get this thing out of the country. I mean, it, it's very simple. Either Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Snapchat are allowed in China, or TikTok's not allowed here. Three, two, one, bye. And then there's more and more disclosures. I read an information story this morning. You know, the CCP has definitely been exploiting TikTok, and they were in denial about it. The U.S. operation was in denial about it, but they were factually lying, you know, to the American people and to politicians. Okay, here's my next idea. We'll throw it up. You log in to Facebook, Instagram, and it says, would you like to pay? And we will collect no data, no ads, six bucks a month. This is not going to generate massive revenue, but it is going to give a trump card. Hey, listen, 8% of people want to uh, pay to protect their privacy. The rest of the people want a free service. What do you think? Got legs there? Well, not really, because I don't think they have an economic issue as much as a user attention issue. Okay. And so I think the future of users and consumers' time is more, they're more vulnerable to that than mm. can they mint money. Like okay. They can exploit the audience they have. It'll decay slowly enough. Then they can still generate revenue. But the fundamental shift is users want, uh, consumers want to spend their time on TikTok and other platforms and not on Facebook. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll give you a, a, tangi- a tangible asset test. Okay. For a while, I think a lot of people were locked into Facebook for even events that you get invited to birthday parties and stuff yeah. on Facebook. I haven't received a birthday event through via Facebook in over 18 months, a single yeah. one. No. And uh, no more group invites. I'm not getting these crazy group invites constantly. Nobody's sending me a post. Did you see this? You have to respond to it. It's really waning. And and we've seen this movie before. I mean, Facebook and MySpace and AOL and Yahoo were like fixtures in our lives for hours a day. And then we don't ever go back to them. Yeah. And they can't buy the kinds of things you would typically try to do. You'd buy Snap if you could. You'd buy Reddit, perhaps, if you could. You can't. Hmm. Yeah, it's really feels like they're in a super dilemma. When we look forward in the market, what do you think is going to happen? We have record pretty close to record low unemployment. Participation is a little bit weird. Uh, uh, obviously, a lot of people have just decided to not participate. Maybe they're trading crypto. Maybe they're doing gig stuff off the economy books. We have a record number of jobs available to people. Consumers are spending money. They want to get out there. And let's face it, you said uh, in a previous episode, I don't have it right here, but you said Q4, your prediction was uh, COVID recedes in Q4. You missed it by 40 days. Uh, you know, you can't get everything right. Sorry, Keith. You were six weeks off on that one. But uh, I'm retiring. You're retiring. <laughs> no, no more predictions. What, 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 what are the next two years going to look like? If you had to, you know, Sachs is panicking about a recession. Uh, I'm looking at it going, God, this feels like a setup now that we've repriced everything for a comeback. I don't think it's going to be dramatic, but it does feel like with this reopening, people want to get out and about. Uh, people want to spend their money. They want to travel. So what's your prediction for the economy the next two years? Well, I don't, I don't know if David's wrong. I think if you raise interest rates too much, you will induce a recession. But I think there's a, a fair amount of demand, consumer demand. Yes. So that's 
that may offset these things. I'm not like a macro, believe it or not, I'm actually not a macro forecaster. Uh, Peter, Macro's my colleague hard. at Founders yeah. Fund, yeah. is when I, when I, when I, where are my predictions, you know, my sort of orthogonal predictions that, you know, everybody ridicules uh, at the time come from is really a specific topic at a time. Mm. And so, you know, for example, uh, Bloomberg wrote a profile of me in May of 2020 that uh, dismissed my uh, COVID comes from a Chinese lab. Uh, as a <laughs> yeah, that's unquote, another great one. As a quote, as a quote, fringe theory, you yeah. know, literally in quotes, but not mm. citing a source. It was very yeah. nice journalism. But it was more that I was studying, you know, the sort of the virus, and it just occurred to me that the law, that the theories that were being proselytized made no logical sense whatsoever. Yeah, somebody uh, eating a bat in a wet market. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and it just happened to be, you know, in the wet market located next to the virology lab. Hmm. Lots of other issues with that theory too. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it basically defied common sense. So, per my point about inflation and interest rates and valuations being connected, I think sometimes just common sense like gets you to like logical conclusions. Yeah. So, for example, one of my one of my best predictions ever was on July fourth, twenty sixteen. I predicted the exact percentage of the vote Trump was going to get. I said he's mm. going to get forty six percent. He got forty six point one. So I missed wow. like ten dips six months before the election. It wasn't actually that hard. It really wasn't. And then the, the day of before the election, I said Trump's going to win the electoral college and lose the popular vote. The only person in the world, I believe, that explicitly stated that. I don't know of anybody else who publicly stated that. And it wasn't. It wasn't like rocket science. Actually, all you had to do is take public opinion polls, weight them by states' electoral votes, get rid of California because it, it skews because of the population, and you wound up with that answer. Like this, it, it's like there's so much noise in the world. I remember um, my husband and I actually interviewed the former head of the Mossad, um, or got to meet him, and then we, he Jacob used it as a partial interview for the book he he wrote, and. Uh, the point he made was fascinating at the time. This is probably four years ago. And he said, there's nothing, there's no secrets in the world anymore. There's literally none. The only thing you have to do, everything's in the public domain. The question is, how do you find what to pay attention to in the public domain? And that's kind of my general belief about the world right now. There's so much noise and stupidity that if you do nothing else except just ignore it all, it's really easy to get to the right answer. And if we look, oh, and by the way, Jacob's book, uh, The Wires of War, must read, and he's been on the program twice himself, talking about China. Damn, um, if he's on twice, he's going to catch up to me. Is, yeah, well, we, maybe someday a crossover episode where you both put numbers on the board, we get a little pick and roll going here. We did We did one podcast together with Eric Tornberg. It's actually pretty pretty good. That should be, yeah, that's an interesting, we could get into parenting tips <laughs> and, and strategies. <laughs> no, which, no, we're not doing, we're, we're definitely not doing parenting tips together. We'll get in a big debate. <laughs> okay, so let's think about this from first principles. I know you got to go soon, but um, you got record savings. Balance sheets are great for consumers. You got record unemployment slash jobs available. You got crazy rising wages. And you got massive pent up demand in the reopening and you have companies with massive amounts of cash on their balance sheet, innovating at a massive level. And China has decided that they're going to close their economy off and retreat and not compete on a global basis anymore. This to me, feels like the setup for American exceptionalism for a decade. But what do you think? I'm thinking from first principles here, who's going to compete with our entrepreneurs? I am pretty optimistic because yeah. I think there's a lot of uh, lessons from the last 40 years that the best time to start new companies is during a recession. And so one way or the other, I believe we have you know a lot of entrepreneurial skills, talent, and financing ability here in the United States. 
And in many parts of the United States, Miami specifically, we have the great culture for, for entrepreneurial success. So I, I think we will build solutions to problems we have. And right now, I think it's hard to build a, a, a company successfully when everything is inflated. Uh, you need critical density of talent. This was the key lesson of PayPal. You need to assemble and marshal critical density of talent. You have to hold that talent together. And in a hot market, when anybody can raise money, when everybody thinks they can build things easily, it's very difficult to marshal that talent. In a more conservative market, a more difficult market, a more fearful market, assembling the right team and preserving that team and keeping that density of talent together is much more possible. And that leads to much more success, uh, higher magnitude successes and more impact in the world. Absolutely. All right. Your boy, Peter, uh, is off the board of Facebook. I know you don't speak for him, but just as his friend, and he's been on the prod before, he's ramping up to get super involved again in politics. Chances he's in, if the Republicans win, chances he's in the cabinet, or do you think he would ever run for office himself? Knowing what you know about Peter, you I don't speak, speak for him. Peter. I, I would doubt that. Well, I'm very much doubt that he's going to run for office. Okay. Um, and I Cabinet position? Mm. I'm, I would be very skeptical of that as well. So behind the scenes, being supportive and uh, taking that route, which he's taken so far. Well, Peter, Peter has ideas that he believes in, and he's always looking ways to channel them. The Teal Fellowship is a way to channel yeah. the, you know, sort of the monstrosity of higher education and the terrible status of it and the cost and the poor ROI. So politics is just one vehicle for channeling ideas he believes in. Yeah. What do people misunderstand about him? You should think about it, like because he's he's kind of an enigma, right? Uh, he's he's self contrarian, but like, what's his best quality? What do people misunderstand about that guy? Well, the two the two best qualities are his ability to assess people. You can't be in the business of backing founders and building a team at PayPal without the ability to assess people that are under the radar, undiscovered talent. That's one most important thing he's taught me is the need to do that, the urgency of doing it, and to some extent, some of the insights of how to do it. And then, secondly, Peter is in the top two or three macro thinkers on the planet of uh, putting connecting dots that do assemble a lot, do uh, create a line when nobody else sees the connection between the dots until later. And so his ability to do that every you know, three to five years and have a theoretical connection of dots is just incredibly impressive. Some makes it in the public domain, some doesn't, but he can, he can do it regularly and consistently and is mostly right. What's going to happen in real estate. You, I know you have I a lot of bets there. More, we have much more cushion in, in residential real estate than people realize. Uh, so the residential real estate market can easily survive a hundred to maybe even 150 basis points rate hike. Okay. Yeah, uh, people for a variety of reasons get somewhat technical, but having studied this very carefully, there's no reason that people should fear that housing sales are going to change radically if the Fed rate raises interest rates 50, 60, 70 basis points. You get outside 100 into 150, then there might be, you know, some, some distortions in the market, but nobody's pricing that into the current stocks. Right. And the supply going to change in any way at any time? I mean, that seems to be the biggest problem in our country is that we can't meaningfully add to the supply in the places we need. I mean, you do get Miami, New York, and Houston maybe adding a lot more units than other places, but it's still pretty dismal in terms of, you know, how many houses we need. And is there, is there ever going to be affordable housing in the United States again, in your mind? Or is it just going to be a perpetual show? Well, I, affordability is a function of what people earn. You know, it's a fraction of income. So as in real, real wages go up, 
uh, affordability is easier. That's why actually during but the Trump years, before, right. yeah, but you need supply too, absolutely. But in the Trump years, real wages went up very considerably, and so people could afford housing. Now there are cities that restrict housing artificially, and anytime you do that, prices are going to be ridiculous. Miami, we have currently twenty-two skyscrapers under construction this year. Crazy. twenty-two skyscrapers. That's just That's this a year lot of cranes. Too. Looks like Shanghai yeah, so down you, there. Yeah, it's very difficult to match supply and demand instantly. Like you can't just suddenly build yeah. housing. Yeah. Now we are at Founders Fund uh, funding technologies that are changing the artisan artisan nature of building a home into a product. And once you have a productized experience, then you will be able to ship homes fast in days, weeks, not months and years. Homes built and then, in factories. I forgot the name of the yes, company in Austin. Three you and- cover. Well, we have one in cover, one named cover, but we would fund versions of this. Some of them are 3D printed. Some of them are prefabricated. I'm in a modular a one. Of, yeah. Called yeah, blockable. There's a way of matching yeah. software design with quickly assembled, accurately assembled with no stakes. Um, and that will allow for more responsive product, you know, product demand supply matching but a lot of it is a political problem we like miami costs currently 50 percent uh the cost of living in san francisco or new york it'll come back down actually because we're adding more units and now it may go up to it was 33 percent. it's up to 50 percent. it'll come back down it may not come down tomorrow but it will come back down because we're just going to add more supply san francisco california have crashed since you left and uh the debt spiral continues has Detroit 2.0 is uh, exactly. I, I mean, it is. I mean, it's scary. Literally, you know. And my wife is Asian. My kids are. And know, it was, it was incredibly Asian. predictable, by the way. If you look at Patrick Halson, who's quite brilliant and quite prescient, he tweeted this in October 2017 that San Francisco was going to be, unless it changed course, the greatest example of ruining prosperity by politics, by politics and policy ever in the history of mankind, and he's going to be proven to be correct. Feels like it. I mean, the, the people need basic safety, and and when things are run this poorly from schools to everything, it's just a disaster. All right, listen, I know you got to go. Yeah, I have to go. I have this ex- really exciting trip to the dentist. Oh yes, <laughs> and, to, yeah. <laughs> as much as I would rather stay, maybe we should talk for another hour. <laughs> Which would be more painful? <laughs> Which would be more painful? The grilling for me. This one's been easy on you. It's not a grilling. You got all the great. Uh, I gave you a victory lap episode. I'll see you in six months, my friend. Uh, or actually, I'll be in the uh, Miami for the All In Sun. We'll see you then. And good luck at the dentist. Great. Thank you. Take care.